And for the rest of us, we will stand as we hear God's word. From Deuteronomy. The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire any more, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers, and I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. Then Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo, to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him all the land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the Western Sea, the Negeb and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zor. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac and to Jacob. I will give it to your offspring. I have let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not go over there. So Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, according to the word of the Lord. And he buried him in the valley in the land of Moab, opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows the place of his burial to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His eye was undimmed and his vigor unabated. And the people of Israel wept for Moses in the plains of Moab for 30 days. Then the days of weeping and mourning for Moses were ended. And Joshua, the son of Nun, was full of the spirit of wisdom, for Moses had laid his hands on him. So the people of Israel obeyed him and did as the Lord commanded Moses. And there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. None like him for all the signs and the wonders that the Lord sent him to do in the land of Egypt. So Pharaoh and to all his servants and to all his land. And for all the mighty power and all the great deeds of terror that Moses did in the sight of all Israel. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Would you please pray with me? Father, as uh, in this season, uh, we, um, we contemplate without comprehending how you uh, could become one of us uh, to, to reveal yourself to us in your Son as a human being. Um, we also rejoice in the reality that even right now you draw near to us, that even right now as we are gathered here, uh, your word is present and you are speaking. And so, uh, Lord, we 
We again look to you for help. We ask um, for your spirit um, to be very present in our hearts, in our hearing, in my speaking, um, that you would be honored and we would be strengthened. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning, um, I think our, our, our two passages, when we view them together, invite us to do something simple but very significant. That is simply invite us to contemplate Jesus. It might not seem obvious. Obviously, both of these passages, you don't see the name Jesus at all. But when we see how they come together, I think you'll see why I'm saying that. So um, Deuteronomy 34, uh, we're not done with Deuteronomy. We're going to kind of come back to the middle in the, in the coming year. But this does conclude Deuteronomy, right? And it also concludes significantly the end of an era. Um, I haven't followed in great detail all that took place at the death of Queen Elizabeth II, but obviously it was a significant thing. Uh, no one has reigned in England longer than she, but even the end of her reign does not compare to what happens here when Moses dies. Israel has never had a leader before Israel, and we are told will not have a leader again like him, at least not when Deuteronomy was written, which probably in its final edited form was maybe a couple centuries later. And I that, that statement, I'll, I'll just kind of highlight it again. I, it's significant, I think, where, where we read right near the very end of chapter 34, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. Now, I don't know if that stuck out to you, but that's not always the way deaths are spoken of. Like when Abraham dies, it doesn't say there has not arisen a patriarch like Abraham. Um, if, I, I dare say if Acts were to have told us the end of Paul's life, it wouldn't say there has not arisen an apostle like Paul. There's something significant that we're being told about here, and the significance is understood only when we look back at what chapter 18 tells us. So in chapter 18, we are told that the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me, Moses says. It is to him you shall listen. So there is this promise in chapter 18 where Moses says, God has revealed to me that he is going to raise up a prophet who is like me and listen to him. And then as the book ends and as the editors reflect, they say, there has not arisen a prophet like Moses to this day. In other words, we're still waiting. We're still waiting for a prophet like Moses. And I would suggest if we understand how Deuteronomy works, it's even more than that because Deuteronomy's conclusion is failure. Moses looks but could not step into the promised land. He is not sufficient for the task. And so Deuteronomy ends with longing for not just one like Moses, but an even greater Moses. Now, often when we are looking at the Old Testament, my sermon, I'll usually try to kind of wait near the end to speak about the fulfillment, but I'm just going to, to kind of lead with this and, and recognize with you probably what you're already anticipating, and that is that when this speaks of one like Moses who is to come, one who is greater than Moses, it is talking about Jesus. In fact, that is explicit in the New Testament when Peter, in Acts chapter 3, one of his very first sermons ever preaching after the resurrection of Jesus, he explicitly quotes these very verses in Deuteronomy 18 and says, that's Jesus. Jesus is the person who is spoken of here. He is the greater Moses. And this morning, what I, I simply want us to do is to see why that matters so much. And to do that, we first need to actually think about what makes Moses so significant and reflect first on him before understanding what that tells us about Jesus. 
So I want to look again just at that simple verse that we already highlighted where it says, there has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses. And then it tells us what it was about Moses that made him different from everyone else. There has not arisen a prophet since in Israel like Moses whom the Lord knew face to face. If you're familiar with the story of Moses and all, you might remember how this begins. It actually begins late in his life. In his late 70s, Moses experiences life. In that moment, it feels like he's a failure. He is in exile because he, he killed a pharaoh, uh, an Egyptian slave master. And so for decades now, he is in the wilderness, removed from his people, isolated, and, and experiencing a very, very ordinary life. Until one day, as he is just kind of herding his sheep, he sees a bush burning, and he comes near, and the bush talks to him. And it tells him not to come any closer because he is now in the presence of God and it is God who is speaking to him. And we're told that in that moment as Moses realizes that he is talking with God, he hides his face because who can look at God and live? And after that moment of hiding his face, a conversation begins. A conversation between God and Moses. And for the rest of his life, that conversation will continue. There is a phrase that is repeated so often, over a hundred times in the first five books, or the first, or Exodus through Deuteronomy, that it happens so regularly we don't even notice it anymore, and it says, the Lord said to Moses, the Lord said to Moses, again and again. It seems like it's almost a daily occurrence. When, when Moses is in Egypt and trying to figure out how to lead Israel, God speaks to him every day. The Lord said to Moses, when they find themselves in the wilderness and Moses has no idea what to do, God speaks. When, when he's finally, he's, he's brought to Mount Sinai and, and God then in this loud, thunderous voice speaks to all of the people and, and they are utterly terrified as they hear the Ten Commandments and they say, don't let, this can't happen any longer. We, we, we can't bear this. No one can be this close to God, can hear the voice of God and live. Moses, you go do it. And Moses does. He, he goes up to the top of the mountain and his conversation with God continues. Can you imagine what that would be like? Just almost daily. You know, sometimes when we pray and maybe we're even asking God questions, can you imagine regularly knowing that God will answer them to you? There, there's an intimacy that, that Moses seems to have with God. He, he knows Him relationally as if it were face to face. And because of that, because God speaks to him, he has this unique capacity as a prophet. A prophet, of course, is someone who speaks on behalf of God, but Moses is able to speak on behalf of God like, unlike anyone else because he has this regular line of communication. He's this kind of midpoint. On one hand, he's, he's the member of Israel. He's an Israelite, and yet he is close to God, and so he is able to be this connection point, this constant giver of the Word of God so that again and again God's people who need it regularly can hear the Word of God through Moses. And it is that what makes all of his leadership and ministry significant. People sometimes talk about how Moses is a great leader. I don't, I don't think that's the right way of seeing it. What Moses is, is he is someone who brings the Word of God and in that is power. It's true the whole time. So if we think about the beginning of kind of the big story of Exodus, where, where God's people we know are in Egypt as slaves, and not just for one generation, it's multiple generations. If you can imagine what it would be like to be an adult at that time as a slave, you cannot imagine another reality. I mean, 
your family can't run away. Where are they going to go? And you certainly aren't going to be able to, as slaves, overpower the Egyptian army. Your future is certain, and it is as a slave. And there's no other possibility, no hope. And so imagine if just this old guy comes to you and says, Hey guys, I've come to rescue and bring you out of Israel. I mean, bring you out of Egypt. You, you are, you're going to say, fine, you're a funeral, but I'm not doing anything with you. But imagine if that same person comes and he says, I've actually had a conversation with God, and I'm actually going to show you some signs to show that I'm for real here, things that only God can do. And let me tell you what he said. He, the, the Lord God, has said, I have heard your prayer, and I am going to bring you out of here and bring you into the land I will give you. Now, that has power. And it's with that same power, the power of bringing the word of God, that Israel is freed. When, when Moses comes to Pharaoh, what does he say? The Lord God says, let my people go that they may worship me. And it, it takes Pharaoh a while to understand. I mean, it takes time after time after time, sign after sign after sign that this is truly God and that you really should take this seriously. But eventually Pharaoh realizes, I cannot mess with God. If this is what he says, I must do it. And so the people of God are set free by the power of the Word of God. The Word of God is powerful, and Moses is the one who is meant to bring that to the people. And it doesn't end there. When they find themselves in, in, in nowhere, like in the wilderness, just imagine again what it must be like. You know, slaves experience a life of misery, but it is a predictable misery. Right? There is a kind of sick safety in being a slave. You always know where you're going to live. You know that your food is coming. You know what your day is supposed to be about. And suddenly they're out in the middle of nowhere. And there's this question, what in the world do we do? How are we going to survive? Where do we go? Where do we get food? Once we find food, where do we go to live? Once we live, how do we have a government to even figure out how to work together? These are the kinds of questions that any one of them easily could end in disaster. They could never find food. They could find themselves up against armies or even can think about how, how so much political instability happens for, for nations that haven't just suddenly come into existence. No, no leader is capable of figuring all these things out. And that's not what makes Moses significant. What Moses was able to do to this people who were terrified and confused and without any certainty is say, let me tell you something. God says something to you. He has spoken to me, and he says, I will show you the way. I will tell you a good way, a way to live. I will lead you in the path that is right. I will bring you into the land, and I will show you how to live as my people. That's, that's what Deuteronomy is. It's this gift that Moses, through Moses, is given to the people saying, this is how to do it. There is strength and, and power in that. It, it gives light in the midst of darkness. There is power in the Word of God. And then there's another important thing, of course, that happens through Moses being this connection point. There's, I think, a tendency that we have, something that C.S. Lewis calls chronological snobbery, to assume that people in our day understand things way better than people, those savages back then. But there are some things that I think that sometimes people then see more clearly than us. And one of them is, is having to do with, with the significance of God. There was a conviction pretty much worldwide, that if God truly exists, it's pretty important that we know who He is. 
Because he's the one that, you know, everything holds together through. Or, or for some, it might have been God's. But, but if we want our life to mean something, if we want to understand what our life is for, it's important for us to understand who God is. And so you see every nation under earth or in, in that area devoted to understanding who their gods were, what it meant to worship. Of course, the problem was, how in the world do you know whether you're right? How do you know, actually, whether you know the true God that is so important to know? And Moses comes in a way that no other nation can say, and say, hey, guess what? God is telling us who he is. He, he says, here is God's word. This is me. This is who I am. I am the Lord your God, and I'm going to give you a covenant so that you can know how to relate to me. Through Moses, Israel comes to know the true God. There is power in the word of God, and that, and that is what Moses was, was commissioned to do as someone who, who knows God, who hears God, who can speak to the people. He, he brings the word of God to them, and the goal is clear. It is to bring them rest, to bring them out of slavery, to bring them into the promised lands, to bring them into fellowship with him that they might enjoy it. And it's here that we see that as great of a person, as great of a leader that Moses was, or however we want to put it, he was not enough. Because as we've already seen at the end of Deuteronomy... Moses gets to the edge, and he's able to look, but he never finishes the job. He is never able to bring God's people into the promised land of rest. And there's a significance about that. We're, we're meant to understand not just that it's some sort of accident, but that there's something fundamental to Moses that is insufficient and is inadequate for this job. I think it's impossible for us to understand just how difficult the position Moses was in. I mean, just imagine what it was like for him to be in this go-between role. These people were filled with anxiety and confusion and oftentimes frustration towards God. And where does all that anxiety and anger and frustration go but towards the one who represents him? Moses is the one who just kind of experiences the brunt of it. And meanwhile, Moses is a human being. He is a sinner. He is someone who is one of them. And so when he comes to God, he himself can be caught up in some of the same feelings that they have. There is a sense that you might say that Moses, as the one who is at the center of this relationship between the two, is like the sin magnet where all of the mess, all of the stuff, all of the tension in the relationship because of Israel's inability, inability to follow God gets centered on Moses, and at a certain point, he is insufficient for it. We're told in this kind of moment that exposes his inadequacy that there's one time where God's people are, are worried because they don't have water, they're complaining, they're, they're crying out, they're angry, and, and Moses gets so frustrated after, after God tells him, here's what you need to do, just, just talk to this rock, and water will come, and people will see my glory. And Moses instead goes, you stupid rebels, do you want me to get you this water? And he takes his staff, and he just hits the rock, and water flows from it. And what's happened is, in that moment, he has been so caught up in sin that he has failed. He has failed to show God faithfully. He has failed in his calling. And through this, we see his inadequacy. He is not going to be the one who can do it. As important as he is, as significant as he is, Moses is insufficient to do what is really needing to be done for God's people truly to be saved, for God's people truly to be led in the way of righteousness, for God's people to truly know God, someone greater is needed. 
And so Deuteronomy concludes with, with waiting, with longing. We have not yet found that person. There has not yet arisen a person like Moses. We are waiting for the great prophet. Now, I say that this is like, you know, in some ways the last scene in Deuteronomy, of course, with Moses, but it is not the last scene in the Bible with Moses. There is this really extraordinary moment over a thousand years later where Jesus, in many ways like Moses, is going to the top of a mountain and he brings three of his disciples with him. And as he is praying with God for the people at the top of the mountain, again, very similar to Moses, he, he, he takes on this glory in the way that if you read the Old Testament, it says that when Moses meets with God face to face, he comes with glory. You see that happening as, as Jesus is having this experience of speaking to God. He reflects the glory of God, and then something else happens. It says that in that moment, two other people appear. Elijah, who was widely known as the second greatest prophet of all time, is there with Jesus. And then there's Moses. And we're not told exactly how this happens. I'm assuming that God temporarily gives them their bodies. But, but think of this. This is the moment for the first time that Moses has ever set foot on the promised land. And wouldn't you love to hear this conversation as the three of them are talking? Like, I remember in high school, sometimes there's like a cool group that I wasn't sure if I could ever break into and I didn't feel like I could speak to them. Talk about an intimidating group of people. You've got Elijah and Moses and Jesus talking with each other. And so Peter, you know, is just kind of like, he, you know, you, later on he's just like jabbering. He has no idea what to say. But we're told that he overhears that what they are saying is they are talking about Jesus' exodus that is to come which is an interesting way of putting it. It's suggesting that even as Moses led God's people on an exodus to salvation, Jesus is going to be doing that again. And then if there's any doubt about what this is telling us about Jesus, we, say, we hear that there is a voice from heaven. It is clearly the voice of God. And this voice declares, this is my son, my chosen one. And then he says, listen to him. And those words are intentionally meant to echo Deuteronomy 18. God is declaring, this is him. This is the one you've been waiting for. This is the one who is even greater than Moses, who will accomplish what Moses did not. Because Jesus isn't someone who brings God's word like Moses was able to. Jesus is the word of God. The Hebrews tells us that in the, in the past, it says, God spoke in various ways through prophets. Now he has spoken in son. It's like son is his language. He has spoken in Jesus. Jesus is the word of God. And it's not just that Jesus has this, this kind of somewhat intimate connection with, with the Father. He has known the Father for all eternity. John tells us that he dwells at the womb of the Father. He dwells side by side with the Father because he is one with God. And he also stands between humanity and God, except unlike Moses, he is not insufficient. So he is, like Moses was, the sin magnet. Think of when he came into this earth, when he was in ministry, when he spoke on behalf of God, how all of people's fear, all of people's anger and hatred towards God was directed towards him and was vented towards him on the cross. And meanwhile, he, as one who stood with us, took all of our sin upon himself as our representative. He was the sin magnet, except unlike Moses, he did not falter, but brought it with him to death and was faithful to the end. Where Moses was insufficient, Jesus is sufficient. He is the greater 
Moses who is able to bring us the greater rest that Moses was not able to. And, and let me tell you why that's important. God already tells us what the application is when he says, this is my son, my chosen one, listen to him. Listen to him. Everything that Moses kind of was able to do, Jesus is able to do in full. So we obviously, none of us are slaves in Egypt. But I think we know in some ways what it means to be a slave. Even right now, maybe some of you feel a kind of stuckness. You, you, you want to be different. You want your life to be different. But you are sick of all the platitudes, the things on inspirational posters, believe in yourself, just try hard, visualize and you will achieve it. All of those things are like a boat that has been crashed against the rocks of reality through a hurricane. You know they are empty because none of them are enough. You feel the reality that this world is broken. And more than that, if you are really honest in certain moments, you realize there's something inside of you that is broken. There is a guilt that is true of you that cannot be washed away, and you feel trapped. And you need to hear that when Jesus comes, here is the word, the very, one of the very first things he ever preaches. He says, the Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives, recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And what I want you to understand is you and I, we're the blind. We're the oppressed. We're the ones who are held captive. We are the ones in the thrall of sin. And Jesus says, I have come to rescue you. That is what his word is. And for those who hear it, they experience the power of salvation. So there's this moment soon after he preaches this sermon where he is preaching another sermon in another town, and at a certain moment, part of the way through, a member of the congregation apparently is demon-possessed. And so he suddenly starts shouting down Jesus as Jesus is preaching. And Jesus, it seems like, without even blinking, basically just says, demon, be out, be quiet, and then it's done. And then he keeps on preaching. And what's interesting to me after is when people are commenting on what they have just seen. I mean, here's a church service you will never forget. They don't say, we had a demon in our congregation. No, that's, that's not the thing that uh, sticks out to them. They're like, what is this word? Because it has so much authority that even the demons obey. Because that is the word of God that comes to us in Jesus. It is a word with power. And when we hear, that is, not just with our ears, but when we come to hear, when Jesus says, I have given myself for you, I love you, and we allow that reality to shape us, that word has the ability to calm the chaos in, in, in our souls, to, to, to remove the, the, the bitterness and the fearfulness and the hatred and to give us a heart of gentleness and courage and love because there is power in the Word of God. Listen to Him. We also might not, um, in fact, we know we're not 
lost in the middle of the wilderness. That is not us, but boy, do we know what it's like at times to feel lost. I mean, it seems like this constant struggle. How do, how do we do this? How do we make something of our lives? How do we find a way to work meaningfully and satisfyingly? How, how do we help our children to flourish and become the people they were meant to be? How, how do we love well? There's so many questions we have, and so often it feels like we are fumbling in the dark. We, we feel a blindness at times. And, and remember, as Jesus is, is walking along the way, there's this one moment where Bartimaeus, a blind man, asks for Jesus of mercy, and Jesus simply says, receive your sight. And as Bartimaeus hears and believes, he sees. Because there is power. There is power in the word of Jesus. There is a way where Jesus says, I, I am the light of the world, that as we give our lives and give our time apprenticing ourselves to Jesus, studying his word, understanding what it's saying, that we realize that we are only beginning to understand the depths that Jesus is showing us. And the more we understand, the more clarity there is to how to live, to who we are, to what we are meant for. Jesus says, the one who hears my word and my commands and does them is like a man who builds his house upon a rock. I will show you the way. There is power in the word of God. Listen to him. And though I said that in our day there's perhaps less of an awareness of the importance of needing God, we still, we still know that, right? There, there is a part of us that knows that, that we need to know who made us, that we need to somehow have a relationship with the one who's at the center of everything. And yet, for so many of us, for so often, there's kind of an avoidance about all of that because it, it makes us uncomfortable because, because we know that we are not. We are not what we are supposed to be. And, and the way that we deal with that is just by avoiding. And the more we avoid, the less real at times this God can feel. Except it's not even just that, because a part of us still realizes that there's this reality that we need to deal with. The hardest thing for us to imagine is that this God could be anything but angry with us. To, to imagine that this God actually would look upon us with compassion and love and give us attention, longing to see good for us. That is so hard for us to believe. And yet, here's what Jesus says. Jesus says, if you hear me, you are hearing God. If you know me, you know God. And here is what I am telling you. That God so loved the world, that God so loved you, that he gave me for you, that you might have life. If you hear me, you will know God and know his love. There is power in the word of God. There is power because unlike Moses, who was never able to make it to the end, we are told that after Jesus dies bearing our sin, he raises triumphant and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He has experienced the rest, and he says, where I am, you also will be. He promises us the rest. He says to you and to me, come to me, all who are weary, all who are heavy laden, listen and learn from me. 
Learn from me. I am the one who speaks, and you will find rest for your souls. Last week, we saw in Deuteronomy how, how Moses kind of concludes the sermon by saying, this is not far from you. The word is near. This is not hard for you to understand. The word is clear. And I want us to even understand right now that the Bible tells us that whenever we consider Jesus together as a community, Jesus is present with us. Jesus is speaking to you right now. And he invites you to hear him because there is power in his word. For he is the greater Moses. In just a moment's time, uh, we will be singing this well-known hymn, O Little Child of Bethlehem. And I, I just noticed that the final stanza in some ways captures the posture that we are being told to have when God says, listen to him. It says, O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in. Be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us. Abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel.